0: This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. Today's program is a Danish special. Fashion designer Stina Goya joins us in the studio ahead of her new store opening in London. We visit a folly that appears to be made of paper and hear from two designers helping revive their family's heritage designs with the help of and tradition. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Stina Goya's namesake label is known for its vibrant palette of bold colours and prints. Launched in Copenhagen in 2006, it breaks from the minimalism commonly associated with Scandinavian fashion. Since then, the company has attracted fans from across the globe, with a playful approach and flattering cuts, and later this month, its newest outpost opens in London. To find out more about the label and its new shop, Stina and the brand's CEO, Thomas Hertz, joined us at Midori House. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi began by asking Steena how she would describe her design DNA.
1: If I was to name one inspiration for me as a designer, as a driving power, it's colour. It's where I start from. Every time I build a collection, it's, it's playful. And then I would say artistic, because we do everything in-house, like all prints and all fabrics are all um, made within the house of us. I think what is quite significant for us is that actually when I hear people wearing our clothes, they all say that they get a lot of comments when they wear us because they are standing out a bit in the streets because it is you you have to be quite sort of in a way brave to put it on because it's, um, what would you say, like...
2: It has a lot of great attention.
1: Yeah, maybe that's a good way to put it. So
3: attention, yeah. colorful, seeking clothes, but also they still do represent a lot of the Scandinavian ethos and the Danish ethos, right? How does living in Copenhagen and uh, the overall ethos of uh, of Denmark around design inform what you do, even if uh, the aesthetic is more of a standout aesthetic than what we might traditionally associate with uh, Scandinavia?
2: I think in a way the playfulness the um, the openness of combining different colors I think when you live in a country like Denmark where you are quite safe and where you have um, educational possibilities and background within the creative world that you definitely learn that you can you can do quite a lot and uh, it's it's okay and I think this safe an open way of living. I think it also uh, inspires you to to utilize it in a way, or to to, to try to experiment and, and 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 find your own way. In it. And um, I think it it creates this creative culture. Also, of course, uh, we have a creative environment in Denmark, which is very much also supported from government and from private uh, companies so i I think there is a quite healthy creative environment in 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 denmark of course it can be better or worse and there will be people telling us that it's not true but i think overall and compared to situations in many other uh, countries i think it's it's one of one of the special things
1: so copenhagen is quite I would say, a smaller creative community. Many of us know each other and I like to collaborate within um, also other industries than fashion. So at the moment, we are working quite a lot with an architect um, company called Spacon & X with... Was creating our uh, identities for the shows and and the way that we work together across like both fashion and and kind of spatial design is quite interesting. And I think we have a very um, beautiful way of like understanding each other and coming to a point where we actually create something completely new together.
3: And I think this is a, a good leeway into your uh exciting London store opening as well, because I know that you have some interesting collaborators for, for the interiors and the design of that store as well. So let tell me a little bit about uh, how you
1: created the concept of that store, who your collaborators were. We started creating a new visual identity for us um, about a year ago. We we're working with a creative studio from Sweden. It's called Vängen Söderström. They have created our like our retail designs, and the way that they work has been really interesting for us because we. Um, it was really important for us to to use um, materials that were um, the most sustainable versions that we could use, and they managed to actually create and find things that are the best that we could manage to find in within um, our kind of levels of being the most responsible as possible
2: that is interesting again you know to find somebody who is actually not architects they are more they're more designers into different areas of doing interior design or objects or and and they haven't tried to build a space from scratch and of course, we haven't tried that either. You know, we did our own shop uh, or our first shop uh, together. But you know, taking it to the next level, understanding how important it is that it's also functional in a in a in a special way when you want to kind of make more stores. I think I think it's that the stores and the store that we are opening very soon in London. I think it's very different from the first store that we opened up. We changed, you know, the, the material we use. We changed the color. It has become a lot more bright. Before it was more warm. We used brass. Now we're using aluminum. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to work together with people that you respect a lot, creating something uh, specific. And I think it's maybe also true to the way we in general are working. I think if you respect each other, In the different areas of art or architecture or fashion, I think everybody finds it energizing to combine their thoughts with other thoughts and create something new from that Uh, instead of being very kind of locked into your own, you know, aesthetic. What is important when we find the people that we want to work with is that they have a strong understanding of colors (laughs) (laughs) or are curious about the way we work with colors, which is often uh, an an opening for a collaboration. That you are curious about the other part, uh, how they work, how they how, how do they actually create their uh, art or aesthetic, um, which is a very nice starting point. Being curious and and um, and open.
3: And tell me also, I mean, as the brand is growing now, is it important to have these physical spaces and keep investing in brick and mortar retail, uh, whether it is in London or in other markets where where you are growing?
2: Yeah, I think we learned from from our home market that the combination of of uh, wholesale and uh, e-commerce and own stores are a strong combination. Um, it might not be for everybody, but I think for a brand like ours, I think we uh, we can benefit a lot from it. And uh, and you know we have a strong wholesale business in in, in UK, um, and and the e-commerce business is growing. So we thought it was the right time for us to open up a store to support and give the chance for the UK customers to actually more physically get the experience of the brand and you have also visited us and you know how it is to enter a room with a lot of colors Mm. (laughs) and I think uh, we would like to um, we would like to give that experience to um, to the UK clients uh, as well
1: Mm. and it's also been a big dream for us for for many years to actually be able to to open a shop here I mean, even when I was studying at Central St. Martins many years ago, it was like a dream to be able to, to open a shop one day, you know, and so it's quite a big thing for us to be here at this, this moment. Yeah. And now also the UK has become such an important
3: market for you. There's a lot of demand for Cinegoya. Yeah. What do you think? Is the appeal for um, for British customers for the brand? It's certainly um, something that I'm asked constantly uh, about the brand Copenhagen fashion in general. Uh, there is a real appetite, it seems, uh, from people here about your take on fashion. What do you think has been the reason for this and and your success?
2: You yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's a combination of um, of a of a a specific um
1: aesthetic aesthetic
2: yeah and also some values actually i think there are also values behind i think it's important and even more important for clients that they can identify or at least have some curiosity about what is behind this is it values are they um showing or telling about themselves in a way that i that i understand um And can identify with. And then, of course, it's also about the price, affordable prices and a a quite high quality of design. So you get, I suppose, quite a lot for a reasonable and affordable price.
1: People have their eyes on Copenhagen and I think there's also such a like a positivity, um, like the vibe about Copenhagen. There's, I don't know if we can even keep up this hype, but I think people look at us for a nice way of living a life and a, like a positive lifestyle. Our brand is, of course, it is very Copenhagen-driven, and um, I would say that this also is a factor that people like. Um, like us, that we have this, this very colourful and positive approach to what we do.
0: Stina Goya there, and before that, Thomas Hertz. The duo were speaking to Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Now, we pause the Danish special for a moment for the first of a new series this month called Design Favourites. It's where we, as the name suggests, look at the favourite works of design from some of our favourite designers. Let's have a listen to our first entry.
4: My name is Ngulim Langeniber, and I am a textile designer who is originally from South Africa but currently based in Sweden and I work with textile, uh, homeware and design. I have chosen the Zezeru collection, which includes like a chair, a cabinet, um, and a table. And it is from the Mabeo Furniture, a Botswana-based furniture designer, one of my favorites from the African continent. And uh, it's a collaboration between him and Ines Bersand. I think it's a very interesting, way that they've worked with it, uh, using recycled metal and wood. Uh, The Zezeru collection is also named after the Zezeru people in Zimbabwe who work with metal a lot. So the back of the chair is like this metal shovel and then like wooden seat. One of the cabinets, it reminded me so much of home of South Africa. It's made with this kind of like galvanized uh, metal, which is uh, very familiar, the shack buildings. I mean, we have a shack at the back of our house and it's, we, they use exactly this kind of metal. It reminded me of that and when I saw it first time, I was like, wow, that's cool, you know, like, and it's something that it doesn't look perfect. One thing that they're good at is just working with whatever materials exist, like locally, and like turn it into this beautiful thing. But at the same time, this idea of like using recycled metal for me, it's just it just takes me back to where I come from. What I learned from it or why I enjoy it so much is because of how they've managed to take this material that the local craftsmen work with anyway to create this something that's just so beautiful, sustainable, without overthinking or like just focusing on like oh it's sustainable and whatever it's just like it's just such an organic thing because the, the the artisans themselves use that material to begin with and they just kind of like bringing together their practice and what the craftsmen already do and combining that into something beautiful but I also really like how it references what is already in that place and what there is already part of the the culture and society and like taking it into like this different form and shape. I think it's very, very beautiful, but the collection is actually from 2017 and I would love to own this piece of furniture, Um, day. it's a dream of mine.
0: Our thanks to Nikuli Mlanyeni-Bear for sharing her love for Peter Mabeo's work. We move now to the old port town of Abletoft on the east coast of Denmark. A popular summer destination and famous for its winding cobbled streets, it's also home to the headquarters of textile brand Quadrat. This summer, its campus welcomed a new structural addition in the form of a folly, Designed by the German artist Thomas Demand, the pavilion was created in collaboration with London-based studio Caruso St. John Architects. This show's producer Maylee Evans went along to take a closer look.
5: Amongst lush greenery and perched on a hill within the grounds at Quadrat HQ stands a curious building, an amalgamation of bold colour and shape.
6: It's a folly like in the good old british sense of a folly in a park it's actually three follies so that's hence the title uh triple folly which are basically housing like three ideas of like what the company quadrat uh, needs when they want to have a building in their park i'm thomas demand i'm a i'm an artist working with photography and paper and now i have built a building when they asked me, they didn't tell me what I have to do or what they need. They just said, like, would you like to think about a project up there? And I proposed those three little pavilions. And one of them is shaped like a paper hat, like, you know, you see like at McDonald's or a fast food restaurant. Uh, one of them, the roof is shaped like a paper plate. Um, and the third one is a folded piece of paper, including the lines and the, the punched holes, uh, which houses a small conference meeting place.
5: Demand's reverence towards paper as material is unsurprising when you look at his body of work to date. Though this is the first building from the German artist, his previous work has consisted of creating architectural models from paper and photographing them for posterity.
6: Paper is like an accessible material. At the same time, it's kind of ubiquitous. Like Everybody has like had a piece of paper in his hand today, for sure. Maybe it's the cup for the coffee. It's maybe the banknote. It's the you know the newspaper. It's like a receipt you get for like a transaction or whatever. You know, so but paper is there all the time. That means that everybody knows how it works, and everybody has you know remembers the experience in geometry at school, like how to make a cube, how to make a pyramid. So I can rely on a prefabricated experience in the long-term memory of the visitor, and that's what I liked first. The logic of paper is very simple, but it also has a, a certain accessibility. I like that and I employed it very much and I tried to kind of have as much as, of that in this building as well. You know, the table looks like it's a out of cardboard, the chairs look like it, I just built them and like, you know, put them together, but they're made of bronze and I wanted to have this aesthetic in the whole project basically.
5: In his first outing in creating a Total Artwork, Thomas looked towards more adventurous and colourful buildings for inspiration.
6: There's a long history in traditional architecture about the iconic building, like Robert Venturi, Scott Brown, like, you know, we would have the, the famous drawing of a monument, learning from Las Vegas. That influenced me greatly. I wanted to kind of revive a little bit of that adventurous, iconic, crass, colourful design. Now everything is so rational and everything is so, I thought like I'm doing an artwork. I don't have to follow any rules because I'm not an architect.
5: The colour scheme used throughout the pavilion is vibrant and contrasts starkly across each element of the building. One of the volumes is a stocky, mucid purple that stands out against the fields on site.
6: A building usually has a color, like either it's a material color, like, you know, white, uh, brown from the bricks or something like that. But I wanted to give it a color which doesn't have a connotation with a corporate color. Like red is Coca-Cola, you know, they go on Vodafone, you, you know, Sony, whatever. I needed something which is more subtle and also has more like a textile feel to it. I had 800 different purples until I had that one. At least 60 times I repainted the side wall of my studio in Los Angeles. It's a very different thing if you look at a color sample in this size of a hand or like a size of a building. So there's an assistant in in LA which hates me for like repainting the wall in this nearly the same shade of purple like every two days. (laughs) Paper very often has a little bit of a muted palette. You know you don't have the bright green which you have in the car. You have a green which is probably called forest or something and then it's a little off and I mean none of the colours in the building are run of the mill except the white. Everything is kind of my own tone.
5: The artist's work doesn't end on the external shape of the building, but extends to the interiors too. From designing tables, a circular entertaining space to door handles.
6: It gave me a lot of uh, license to do things and explore materials collaborations like you know mouth blowing lights in murano you know like w- how often do you do that and how is it made you know look at the process look at the possibilities the restraints of that it's that was all it's the fun of the whole project and i had these kind of ideas of like chairs um, which are a little too low tables which are a little too long But this really endless long table is kind of, I thought this is very funny and this is not mass production. So, you know, a lot of care went in there and probably you don't want to have this at home. But for this extravaganza, I thought it would be a good uh, little detour to do all these kind of tropes about like there's design why you have to do that and why you have to do this I, I even thought about white leather on the surface of the table and then we tried it out and of course immediately somebody wrote with a pencil something on it and you can't get it off otherwise i would have had white leather on the table that would have been fantastic but you know like these things like you just i wanted to kind of try out things as much as i can and this is a test case this is not a utopian proposition this is not for everyday use And that's good. That's exactly what it should be. If somebody says, oh, yeah, no, you're in a very luxurious position to do that, I would say, yes, exactly, that's what it is. It's a luxurious proposition and we can do it
5: and we don't have to live in there." For Demand, ensuring that a sense of playfulness was retained was of utmost importance. He was keen to move away from anything that felt too corporate or austere.
6: This is not a hobby place, this is this is not about table tennis or something. It should be productive and it should bring something to the existing structures which they don't provide, which is the sense of uniqueness, a memorable place, an experience. When you come home and two weeks later you still like ask you how did it look like and you can probably still say, oh yeah, it was like this and this, which is not the case with a normal corporate building really. I think we need more follies. But there's a big part in architecture which is basically the temporary proposition. Even the Serpentine Pavilion, for instance, you know, it's there. You remember all of them, but you don't need to have them all the way around. That playfulness, it doesn't have to last. It doesn't have to be a proposition for solving all the social problems in the world. It doesn't have to show you how the future of living is. or something that it's just there for the moment to enjoy and to be productive.
5: This is certainly a folly that I won't forget visiting anytime soon. For Monocle in Abletoft, I'm Maylee Evans.
0: Continuing the legacy of a family firm is challenging after the original entrepreneurs have moved on. It's a situation faced by the family behind Witt and Molgaard Furniture. The Copenhagen-based company was founded and run by Peter Witt and Orla Molgaard-Nielsen between 1944 and 1975. Now it's experiencing a rebirth led in part by the founders' grandchildren, Caspar Molgaard and Malene Vitt. The duo, along with other members of their families, have been delving into the company's archive to reissue works with Danish furniture brand and tradition. We caught up with Kasper and Malene at the release of the X Chair last month, the first new issue of the iconic design in decades. We hear from Kasper, who
7: talks about the re-establishment of the brand in 2016, first. After we, we had some initial conversation with the two families together... And we saw how many drawings, old design, that was actually still in such a good shape. Then we figured out, okay, we need to do something here. And then we formed a small company just to make sure that we had an agreement and saying, okay, if you want to move forward, if we have the right company, if they can make the furnitures in the right way, then we can proceed. So we made the company, 50-50 company, the two families together, which is is really nice that that we, we made this. And it's been so smooth. Everybody's been like so interested in getting it back together or making the the furnitures again that it has just been such a smooth uh, journey uh, for the company and it's it's been quite some years now also from from the first uh, ideas and the first uh, meetings we had uh, until the furnitures actually came out it took four five years uh, so it was a long uh, journey and also so many ideas was going on but it's it's been so uh, such a great uh, great great journey uh, so mm-hmm. far with the with the new uh, Wieden, uh company I mean, uh, what what's your ambition
0: with the company moving forward? Is it to dearchive pieces or is it more, uh, are you going to design new Witten or what does that start to look like?
8: The ambition is a bit different from just setting up a new company because it's set in the framework of our heritage and the designs that already exist. For me personally, I have a, a, a great respect for that, but not to say that they have hundreds of drawings of design that wasn't realized and one of them are part of the collection now which is the lamp which is from the archive and uh, we had to look through it and see what was actually the uh, newest drawing in all the dates so we could be sure that okay this was where they ended this is what they wanted it to look like And that has been a nice process also, to look through the whole archive and see what they came from and where they were also going in terms of other lighting and other furniture. So I think that became part of the ambition. And Christian, my uncle, who is a a lamp and industrial and furniture designer, he has been looking at these drawings and also reinterpreting some of them to extend the lamp collection. Mm So within that framework, there's a lot of possibilities. If we're going to make a completely new design, I wouldn't say no, but it's not something we have talked about so far. But Casper and I are in the industry of design and product design and furniture design, so it's not that it's far from what we do every day, I would say.
0: So I mean, I guess I'm also curious, like as designers, why you know rebirth this company there's obviously that family passion but i mean for you casper why why did you want to be involved in this project and maybe the other question is like it doesn't feel to me that it's something about making money
7: i'm assuming there's more to it than you know this this is yeah tell, tell me a little bit about that i i felt it was unfair that that you couldn't buy if you wanted to go to a store you could buy a lot of the, the, the golden age uh, designers, uh, Danish golden age d- designer, furnitures, But you could not buy a Vida You had to go to a, a second hand or, or go online to, to find it. And often super expensive, if you wanted to go more the more the old pieces. So I, I thought it was so unfair. And that's how I felt. I'm not uh, from the school of architecture and design. So I didn't have the same like uh, distance to reproducing because I felt more like let's get it out there and not not because of the money but because i wanted people to to experience how great the furnitures were and i think also some of the the first ideas of the design was great furnitures great looking furnitures great comfort uh, furnitures but also uh, for everybody so that's the whole idea and also not just the Vita was a part of that whole revolution, good furnitures uh, at a good price. Uh, Swedish company also uh, has some success with that uh, this day. But but they were a part of that whole revolution of Danish designers. So I I really felt like it's such good furnitures that it it needs to be in the market. More people need to be able to experience how great these furnitures actually are. And I, I want to stay with you here, Casper.
0: Like, How did you guys come about selecting which pieces to dearchive? You know, Malin mentioned the lamp
7: there, which hadn't ever been made before, but obviously there are other, other pieces. What was the selection process around that? I think it's a good collaboration in between the, the, the company, the, the families, and of course uh, the producer and tradition. We started out with the most iconic piece, the, the AX chair and the X chair which is, uh, for for me, the most iconic pieces of furniture that they made. So that's that's how the conversation started. And then uh, looking at some of the o- other pieces that were most, of course, uh, most relevant in the market, can we make uh, enough for the market? Um, so I think we, we looked at some of the archive, uh, and together with the with tradition we selected the first uh, items that, that came in the market, the dining chair, and, uh, and some of the more standout pieces like the dining table which is foldable which is completely a fantastic piece of furniture and then the pinwheel table which is not something you see from from any, any other brands so I think we needed to find something to differentiate from some of the other design companies and which wasn't something that was that you could buy from from someone else of course a dining chair is uh, is something you can buy from uh, from a lot of other brands but this is For me, a more aesthetic piece of of dining chair. Melina, building on that and, you know, on on the selection
0: there, you talked about having this, I guess, reverence for your grandfather's work and, I guess, his approach to design. How do you work with your family's design heritage? How do you, maybe, how do you balance heritage with, I guess, a forward-looking approach? Because, really, that's what you, I imagine, you have to be with this as well.
8: I think, uh, first of all, humbleness, (laughs) I would say, really um, an understanding of, what they came from and what their visions were with the design. And yeah, I would say the good thing about the designs is that they're very iconic for their time, but they're also very um, everlasting in their design. So it's I don't feel that we have to go in and reshape or modernize our heritage. So it's more about... Of course we can introduce new fabrics which is a really nice way to have new collaborations also with newer designers. But in that way I feel it sets its mark in the time that we are now where we can find it relevant in I would say also personally in the projects that I'm doing and newly designed projects that I'm, I'm doing a restaurant at the moment. I've just introduced them to the drawn chair. And to have this combination of setting a new design in a framework and then having this chair with such a heritage and storytelling and I feel that it's very unique. It's a good balance of taking an old story and putting it into a new context but still respecting where it
3: came from.
0: My thanks to Casper Molgaard and Moline Witt. For more on the revival of Witt and Molgaard, pick up a copy of our special issue publication, The Entrepreneurs. Brought to you by the editors behind Monocle, it's available at monocle.com now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle On Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.